Yeah, Father, we stand on that promise today that when we lift our eyes up to you, that you cause your face to shine on us. And Father, I pray that whatever we need in this place today, whatever anybody needs, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would take your will for us in your word and reveal it to us. God, we thank you for just the privilege of worship. And we pray, Father, that you would just, having righted our hearts in your presence today, that you would just cause our will to realign with yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do take your seats. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's great to uh, be with you and this morning, and thank you so much for coming. I thought you'd have been out there in the 90-degree weather this week, and um, it's really good to, to see uh, you with us as we continue our series, Ancient Mind, Modern Heart, with a look at Psalm 67, Psalm 67. If you have a Bible, you can uh, turn there. Now, I'm pretty sure that we have all had moments where we've wanted the week to end, right? Or we've wanted something to end so that something else could begin. I'm sure that a number of you are planning on vacations over the next couple of weeks, and it's like, okay, I just got to get through this so that something else can begin. Uh, ironically, last week I wanted the service to end to go and see the score between Germany and Mexico, and no sooner as I said, Germany always win, that I notice a number of you look at one another and smile, and I realize that Germany lost. So this week, my family in Germany wanted the week to end so that life could begin. They're not used to Germany going out in the group stages of a World Cup, so my visit there next week will be particularly enjoyable. Um, let me just say this. It's not very often that a Brit gets to celebrate a British team still in the World Cup while the Germans are going home. In fact, there's a phrase, there's a saying in Britain, we say, soccer is a game of, uh, with a round ball and 11 people and the winner's always Germany. That's typically the way that we say it, but not this time. So the Germans wanted the World Cup to end so that life could begin. That's often the way it is. We want something to end in order for something to begin. Some of you may have been dragged to church today. You can't wait for the service to end. You can't wait for that moment where I'm going to come back up on the stage and do what Pastor Steve did last week. I'm going to raise my hands and then I'm going to say these words, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. You're looking forward to that moment because that's a benediction. And the benediction means the service has ended and life can begin. Right? That's the kind of idea. We all know about benediction. Benediction comes at the end. And it's at the end because now that's finished. The service is finished and now life can begin. A benediction, the end. One commentator writes this about benedictions. He says, the benediction at the end of a worship service is a prayer that the blessing received at the sanctuary will go with the worshipers and link the going out of the worshipers with the ongoing blessing of God in all the fundamental aspects of their lives. The benediction comes at the end. Those of us who've grown up in church know this. The benediction is at the end. The invocation is at the beginning. We've grown up with it. We're familiar with it. The benediction is at the end. Have a look at Psalm 67 and verse 1. Psalm 67 and verse 1 says this. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. The benediction comes where? At the end. So why does the psalmist put it at the beginning in Psalm 67? See, the benediction is the bridge between what happens in here in the worship service or in Psalm 67's context, what would happen in the temple, and then what happens in the rest of life. So why does the psalmist begin Psalm 67 at the end? Because he wants the Israelites and the people of God to realize that when the service ends, serving begins. Psalm 67 is a bridge between what happens in the temple, what happens in the church, and what happens in the rest of life. Psalm 67 is trying to get these ancient minds to live with faithful hearts. And I believe that what is true in the context of Psalm 67 back then needs to be true in our context today. We need to get back to the thrust of Psalm 67 and realize that authentic worship is only as authentic as the practices of those worshiping. That's basically what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, look, it's one thing to to come into a worship service and and find yourself connecting with the people on the inside, but we've got to get back to the heart of what worship truly is. And that's why this psalmist begins at the end. This is a psalm designed to remind the people of God what happens when the service is over. And so he starts at the end. He begins at the end. And so what the psalmist is essentially doing is reminding God's people of three truths about worship. And to get to that point, he takes that ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6, and he puts it right at the beginning of the psalm to try and transition God's people from worshiping here to living out there. So he starts at the end, firstly, in order, okay, to remind God's people of the priority of worship. As soon as God's people would have heard this psalm being read, they would have recognized, wait a minute, this is the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. This reminds us of the importance of worshiping God as a called out, set apart covenant community. Numbers chapter 6, 22 through 27 is where Psalm 67 verse 1 originates. This is what we read. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, that's why this benediction is called the Aaronic blessing. I hope you understood my accent there. Don't know how you would say it, but I say the Aaronic blessing. That's not ironic blessing. I'm not saying that. Okay, it's the ironic blessing. This is what happened at the end of the covenant. God had established a covenant with his people, the the covenant of Sinai. He called them out of Egypt. He led them into the promised land. He'd revealed his will to them. And at the end of this, God comes to Moses and says, call Aaron and his sons and tell them, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. This is the ironic blessing. And this is what you do, Aaron. This is what you say. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. And in doing this, God says, look at this, verse 27, so they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. The reason the psalmist starts at the end is because he wants to remind the people first and foremost of the priority of worship and the point of it. Worship is an encounter with a living personal God who redeems, who sets free, and who reveals himself to his people. Starting with this feigned blessing affirmed the priority of worship for God's chosen people. And the psalmist achieves this by doing two things with this ironic blessing of Numbers chapter six that emphasizes this important truth. The first thing he does is he moves from you in Numbers chapter six to us in Psalm 67 and verse one. You can look at it like this. In Numbers chapter six we read, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. So the whole idea is of the priest standing at the front, okay, in the way that we would do here last week, Steve ended the service by doing this ironic blessing over all of you. And it's you, you, you. It's as if the priest is the, the mediator of the divine blessing, bestows the divine name on God's people. But in Psalm 67, it shifted. May God be gracious to us. May God bless us. May God make his face shine on us. It's moved from you to us. In a sense, it's moved from me to we. God wants his people to realize in Psalm 67 and verse 1 that the priority of worship is for a community, not just an individual. Far too much of worship today is about me, not we. And so the, the psalmist brings the benediction to the beginning, subtly changing the words from you to us to remind God's people of the communal imperative of worship. It's the first thing he does. Shifts from you to us. Elevates the priority of worship of God as a community of believers. Now the second thing that happens here is the subtlety with which the divine name is used. In Numbers chapter six and verse 27, we read that the priest basically puts his name, God's name, on the Israelites, and this blesses them. This is the use of the divine name. The divine name here is Yahweh. And so after worshiping God, having received this blessing from the priests, the divine name was put on God's people. This divine name was a unique name. This name of Yahweh was the covenant name that established the nature of the covenant between God and his chosen people. That made them unique. You see, in Genesis chapter one, verse one, the first name for God that we read in the Bible is Elohim. Elohim is that general name. It, it's the, the name for God, the creator, 
the powerful one, the almighty one, but this is Yahweh. What's significant about this is that Psalms 42 to Psalms 83 are part of what is called the Eloistic Psalter. That basically means that in this section of the Psalms, for these 41 Psalms, the name of God that is mostly used is that of Elohim, not Yahweh. But the number six blessing is a Yahwistic blessing. It is a blessing that is particular and applies to those people who had agreed to walk in covenant relationship with God. They had been blessed in a way that the peoples of the world who didn't know God like this had not. And so in bringing this benediction right to the front of the psalm, the psalmist is beginning by reminding God's people that they know God and they can be known by God. God knows them. That's what we've sung. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how far you've sunk. It doesn't matter what you've experienced this week. God knows you. God loves you. God's called you. God has put his spirit in your heart. God is working in you. You are his. That's a deep, powerful truth, isn't it? But in switching the divine name in this psalm to Elohim, something is going on. See, Psalm 60 through Psalm 67 only have the divine name Yahweh mentioned once in Psalm 64 and verse 10. This section of the Eloistic Psalms stand out because God's name is referred to kind of five times, and yet the divine name isn't used. It's only used in 64 and verse 10. Now note that the divine name of Yahweh is used three times in Psalm 59, it is used five times in Psalm 68, it is used five times in Psalm 69, and it is five times combined in verses seven, in chapter 70, Psalm 70 and 71. But in this section from 60 to 67, the divine name is mentioned five times, but not by the name of Yahweh, it's only the name uh, of Elohim. Something's going on here. The blessing of God in Numbers is, is attributed to God calling people out and putting his blessing specifically upon them. And then the psalmist begins with the Deuteronomic, with the ironic blessing in Psalm, 60, in Psalm 67, and then he switches it subtly with the name. There's a name shift from that covenantal name to the more general name. Why would God do that? Why would the psalmist do that? To understand this, I want to take you back a number of years, 1992, I believe it was, in Germany. I was in Berlin, and I was leading a team of people, and this gorgeous blonde lady had walked to come across my path, and she was always the last person on the square in Berlin. That's the Bombdau Church. If you've ever been to Berlin, there's the main square with the Bombdau bomb Church, and, and uh, part of it is still bombed as a remnant to, uh, to the German nation, never to allow the Second World War to happen again. And when I would have to stay on that square until the last person had finished. And Vipke would always be talking to people, and it was just great. 25-minute walk back, got to know her a little bit, and then to my horror, I discovered that she was only going to be there for like a few days, and then the team asked me to take her to the train station to catch the train home. Not a problem for me. I thought, this is awesome. I thought, I really need to get her details, but it wouldn't be appropriate for me to look, at it, look up the, her name on the computer and use it this way. I need her to give me the details. 
Well, I'm standing on the train, and I'm thinking, how do I get a name and a number? And uh, I knew a name, you know, but the number and address. And, and the only thing I had in my back pocket was an evangelism tract. Right? And uh, for those of you who don't know, an evangelistic tract is basically a, a piece of material that basically tries to take deep, complicated truths about God and make them really simple to those people who have no faith, a little faith, or are just starting in the faith. That's what track does. And so basically, I pulled my, the tract out of my pocket, and I said to Vipke, hey, um, could you give me a details, because I may need to send you some information through Worst Chat Upline in history, I know. And, uh, and uh, she wrote down her name and her, her address and her telephone number and gave it to me. And I kind of put it in my back pocket. And then she went home. And uh, I called her about two nights after she got home. And uh, her mother answered the phone, didn't speak English. I didn't speak German. It was, uh, I'm like, oh, Lord, this is disaster. And then her father came on the phone. And uh, her father said, Vipka's not there. And she gave, he gave me another telephone number. And then I called that telephone number. A guy called Lota picked up the phone, and Lota said, Vipka's not here. She's just gone home. And I thought, do I do this a third time? <laughs> I did it a third time, and, and the rest of it is history. But, but the, the, the point is, the only thing I had on me was an evangelism tract. Why did I have an evangelism tract? I had an evangelism tract because I was involved in evangelism. I was leading a team of people to declare complicated, complex, deep truths about God in a very simple form. If you want to understand what is happening in Psalm 67, you have to understand that the author is trying to remind people of the priority of worship, and it's based on the fact that God sought out His people and put His covenant into their hearts. And that was a deep, complicated truth that was only true for them. But as you'll see in the rest of the psalm, the, the people of God had the responsibility to take this message of this God to the rest of the world. How do you do that? You do that by taking a step back and actually writing these truths about the covenant in a very simple way. That's the reason that the name switches from Yahweh to Elohim. It's as if Psalm 60 through 67 is kind of an evangelism tract. It's there to enable God's people to simplify that message, make it more understandable to those people who are on the outside of the people of faith. So he switches it up. So what we see here then is that the, the psalmist begins at the end in order to remind God's people of the priority of worship. And the priority of worship is always this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That's it. Love him. But is that where it stops? No. No. That's where it begins. And in order to emphasize that, he switches that name from Yahweh, the covenantal name that's all about us and what God is saying to us and how good it is to be a part of our tribe and our family and our nation, me, me, me. And he switches this to the name Elohim, which suddenly has a global universal perspective. Oh, wait a minute. This isn't about us alone. This is about the world. And that leads us to the second point. Why does he start at the end? In order to remind them of the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship. Let me ask you a question. What is the purpose behind you worshiping with us today? 
Why did you come to worship? Now, part of that is for you to connect with God, right? You want, you want to hear from God. You want to be a part of God's people. You want to allow the Spirit of God to, to work in your, your heart and to, and to realign your will and your priorities and your motives with His. You want to honor Him with your life. But, but is that it? The psalmist starts at the end in order to remind God's people that is not it. When the service has ended, serving only just begins. So we, we read these words. The divine blessing, the ironic blessing of number six, has been given to us. Look at those first two words. It's a purpose clause. So that. The priority of worship is we honor and obey God, the God who saved us and redeemed us. But there's a purpose to it. So that. What's the purpose? Your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. The psalmist goes on in verse 3 and repeats verse 3 in verse 5. May the peoples praise you, O God. Notice what it says. May the nations, may the pagans, may they praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Twice in one verse there, and he repeats it in verse 5. Four times in this short psalm, a phrase is repeated. Now, I find this ironic. One of the questions we often get is, why is our worship so 7-11? You know, you sing seven choruses 11 times. Have you ever heard that kind of phrase? Four times in this short psalm, the same phrase is used. Four times. You go to Psalm 36, I believe it is, and 27 times the same phrase is used. There's power in repetition. There's purpose in repetition. When you repeat something, we should be realizing that something is very important to God. What is very important to God here is that we recognize that worship is not simply about us, that there's a component to worshiping God that actually kicks in when the service has ended. See, the repetition of praise, coupled with the phrase peoples, coupled with the idea of Elohim, should turn the focus of God's people from kind of friends in here and enemies out there to friends everywhere. There have been a number of times in my ministry where people have come up to me when the world outside seems scary and basically said, Craig, the church is sometimes too challenging. What I need is I need to feel comfortable because I don't feel comfortable in my life. And there's a, there's a part of that that's true. There's a part of that that's understandable. But there's another part of what's going on in Psalm 67 where the, the psalmist is trying to be prophetic in his ministry to God's people and say, guess what? Worship, if it's truly worship, isn't going to make you comfortable. It is going to intimidate you as you recognize that true worship is only authentic when its purpose lines up with God's purpose. And God has blessed you, the psalmist is saying, so that you will take his message of salvation to the world. It moves us from the idea that we're safe and comfortable in here because we're, we're friends and we're family to the idea that the world is a safe place when we go into it with God. That's the idea. 
Now, if you're a student of mission and of church history, you realize that the last 100 years has just been truly amazing when it comes to the fulfillment of the psalm. At the start of the 20th century, for example, only 10% of the world's Christians lived in the southern continents. Only 10% in the southern continents and the east. While 90% of the Christians in the world lived in North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. 90% at the start of the last century was basically, uh, of the Christians were living in those places. Now get this, today, 70% of the world's Christians live in the non-Western world. 70%. How was this possible? This was possible because our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, our mothers, our great-grandmothers, they did what Psalm 67 said. They went into the world, and the result of that is that in Anglican churches in Nigeria alone, there are more Episcopal and Anglican Christians worshiping in Nigeria than there are in Britain, Europe, and North America combined. There are more Baptists in Congo than there are in Great Britain. There are more AOG churches in Latin America than there are in North America. How is this possible? It's possible because our forefathers looked at Psalm 67, engaged with the Bible in a new way, and recognized our worship is only authentic if we practice what is important to God. See, the Jews had a problem. Part of the problem was with the kind of ascent of David and the blessing of God that came upon the nation of Israel as a result of David's reign. They kind of figured that the whole thing was about them. But what God wanted was to take them back to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, God called Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through blessing you, I will bless you the world. God's plan, even in the Old Testament, was for His people to go and share His goodness, His glory, and His fame with the world, but they weren't willing to do it. This psalm begins at the end in order to remind people of the, not just the priority of worship, but also of the purpose of worship, that the world will hear the salvation of God Himself. Now, the key question that comes to us is, okay, how do we do that? The whole idea of living a life which radiates, proclaims in word and deed the goodness and the glory of God in Christ is something that intimidates us. So how do we do it? If this is a requirement of authentic worship, the challenge is how do we do this? And that's the third thing that this psalm does. The psalm reminds the readers of some of the practices of worship, priority of worship. Hey, we worship a God who's called us and set us apart. But this God hasn't called us to just be comfortable in here. He's called us to, to basically go and share His goodness and His fame and His glory throughout the world. Well, the question is, how, how do I do this? The psalmist actually <laughs> uses a simple tool which encourages people to do it naturally. 
Let me explain what he's doing like this. In the early years of our marriage, I was really, really bad at getting Vibka gifts. I, I would get them wrong. I, I'm not a gift guy. When it comes to birthdays, I don't need a gift. When it comes to Father's Day, Christmas, I really don't mind it. But Vibka's love languages is, was quality time and gifts. Mine is more to words of affirmation. That's basically my love language. So when it came to gifts, I really sucked at it. I was not good at all. You've all heard about my board game fiasco, right? I bought Vipka a board game because I liked it. And so this is a great example of a gift that meant more to the giver than it did to the receiver, right? I think some of us, when it comes to some of the practices of worship, we give God a board game and we expect him to be content with that. Here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of talk in the church today about worship being authentic. Oh, I'm looking for a church where the worship is authentic. Have you ever stopped to consider what that actually means? When you talk to a lot of people and you dig into this and you say, okay, what do you mean by authentic worship? Typically what they're saying is, well, I want to experience something. I want to feel it. Worship is really authentic when I feel it, when I experience something. Now, we'd all agree that there's nothing wrong with that, right? But if our focus on authentic worship is only upon our experience, then aren't we giving God a board game? Aren't we basically saying, hey, what I think God needs is what God gets? And what the psalmist does here he, is he rewrites the script and he says, listen, worship isn't actually about what you feel. Authentic worship is only as authentic as the practices that derive from it. A real gift of worship, a real gift, involves knowing what is important to the receiver of the gift. Worship is only as authentic as the practices of those who are participating in it. The psalmist begins at the end because he wants to remind people what authentic worship really is. Now, what are the examples of authentic worship? How is the psalmist encouraging God's people to bless the world, to take the good news of Jesus to the world? He does it in two ways. Firstly, he basically says, look, you actually worship authentically when you express thanks for God's blessing. When you came in today, were you thinking or driven more by what you lack than what you've received? Is your prayers driven more by what you need than what you've received? Look at what the psalmist says here, verse 6. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, what does it say? Blesses. Present tense. Present tense. This is not past tense. The part of the problem with the numbers, the ironic blessing, is that you can do this, may God cause his face to shine on you and give you peace, and you've got anything but peace. You may be battling a health issue. You may be battling a relational strain. You may have no money in your bank account, don't know where the next meal is coming from. And this ironic blessing comes over you, and it's kind of talking about a reality that isn't yours. That's not what this psalm says. This psalm says that what is happening here, the psalmist has put that ironic blessing at the front in order to remind God's people what authentic worship looks like in a season of prosperity. God, 
Our lands have yielded harvest. Now remember, they would have famine over and over again. You have blessed us. Authentic worship looks like us having the courage to thank God for what we've been blessed with. Let me ask you, what has God blessed you with even this week? Has he blessed you with a marriage that's deeper than it was last week? Has he blessed you with a family that is so tight? Has he blessed you with a job that is provided? What has he blessed you with? Has he blessed you with friendships that other people don't get to enjoy? Authentic worship takes what God has blessed you with and seeks ways of using that to bless the world. The land has yielded its harvest. God, our God, has blessed us. And that's why the psalmist says, in worship we acknowledge that we are being blessed in order to be a blessing. So the next verse, verse 7, says this, may God bless us still. Why? So that again, all the ends of the earth will fear Him. As the people of God, the Israelites were called to reflect God's nature, God's characteristics, God's attitudes, and to take that into the world and demonstrate it through their actions. This is authentic worship. The psalmist begins at the end in order to remind them, not just of the priority of worshiping a God who'd saved them and redeemed them, not just about the purpose of worship, which is to take God's good news to the ends of the earth, but also of some of the practices of worship. And we can take God's goodness to the world in a very simple way. Think about the ways that God has blessed us and take that blessing to the world. Church, that's why we do the Water's Edge Network. Last weekend, we invited the members of this church to vote on whether to merge with Overflow Church in Benton Harbor, another church running about 300 people, a great church. But they approached us in October of 2017 and said, would you consider merging with us, inviting us to become a part of your Water's Edge network? And so the elders and I and our staff, we reflected on this, we discerned this, and we opened the doors of our church. And through your members last week, 92% basically said, let us take the way that God has blessed us organizationally, and let's bless the world through it. That's what the Water's Edge Network is. It's not complicated. God has blessed us in order to be a blessing. How can we organizationally do that? The Water's Edge Network is one way we can do that. But how can you organizationally do that? As a couple, as a family, God has blessed you to be a blessing. What has God blessed you with? Right now, what is the blessing that you can naturally bless God with for the sake of others out there? Don't overcomplicate this. It actually is really, really simple. Now, I know that there are times when we can't wait for church to be over. But this psalm reminds us that when the benediction is done, worship Authentic worship hasn't ended. You see, worship is about so much more than the 75 minutes that we spend in here. That's that little orange speck. Worship is actually about the 10,005 minutes that you're going to spend out there. That's why he begins at the end. Because it's all too easy for Christians to miss the cosmological, the global implications of us being saved. And we can make it about us. 
We can make it about me. And if I'm not getting what I want here, then I can go somewhere else and get it. The psalmist begins at the end in order to remind God's people that if that's our attitude, then something is missing from worship. And if it was missing back then, I dare to say that it's easy for us to miss it even today. How do we wrap this up? How many of you have heard of the Mariner 1 rocket? Any of you rocket buffs out there? The Mariner 1 was a rocket that crashed less than five minutes into flight on July the, the uh, 22nd, 1962. It cost the American government $80 million to make back then, which is somewhere around $600, $700 million in today's money. And uh, the reports, and you can go and look at this, the report said it actually crashed because hidden deep within its code, there should have been a hyphen and the hyphen was missing. And because of a missing hyphen, the mission failed. The Mariner 1 rocket. That hyphen was the most expensive hyphen in all of history. Its omission cost the mission. Psalm 67 begins at the end because the, the psalmist is essentially saying, listen, if we omit the responsibility to carry the goodness of Christ to the world, the mission fails. The reluctance that we have to share our blessings with the world is one of the most costly omissions in the church. This is an important hyphen that belongs in our lives too. It doesn't seem like much, does it? Sharing our blessings with the world. It's easy to overlook. But Psalm 67 says, look, without it, our mission fails. That hyphen, sharing our blessing with the world, is what our forefathers did really, really well. And in this current America, where we are witnessing people from the nations that we once sent missionaries to, now sending missionaries back to us, I think it's time where God, God's word is obeyed, where we get back to the heart of what authentic worship truly is. And authentic worship is basically taking what is important to God and making it important to us. The psalm begins at the end. Because it reminds us of a simple truth. That when we reach the end of the service, the serving has only just begun.